this week I have some exciting news. Um, I did something this week that I always wanted to do. And apparently, after having several conversations with people, I'm the only person on the planet that's ever wanted to do this. But I had, a ju I had jury duty all week. And I loved it. <laughs> like, but it's amazing to me how many people want to get out of jury duty. Oh, it's like you tell them you have jury duty, it's like you have the plague. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know, I, I thought it was really interesting, but at the same time, out of curiosity, how many of you have ever had jury duty? Okay, there is a lot of us. We're a tribe. <laughs> but the thing that surprised me most about jury duty, how boring it is. Like, I, so we watch a lot of those courtroom TV shows, and I didn't expect it to be that good. You know, I didn't expect the, the dramatic, objection, your honor, and I didn't expect, like, a feisty judge, you know, the kind that's like, hey, sit down, I'm in charge here, go to my chambers. I wasn't necessarily getting to that extreme, but the reality is so far from the opposite of that. The objection, I don't know if this is how your case is where, but like the objections, the lawyer's talking and the other one's sitting there doodling or whatever he's doing. And then he just goes, objection, and blah, blah, blah. And then he mumbles. Like, I couldn't understand the guy. And then the judge looks like he's falling asleep the entire time. Like, seriously, arms behind his back in his comfy chair, just relaxing, eyes closed a good portion of the trial. And when the objection would come, he wouldn't, like, get feisty. He would just mumble, sustained. Overruled. I was like, oh. So, but whatever. You know, it was still a really interesting thing. Like, I really did enjoy seeing the eyewitness stuff. I love seeing how they, they develop their case and what made a person credible and what made them not credible. I like seeing how evidence was presented and the whole court procedures. And I don't understand the need for so many bathroom breaks um, and such long bathroom breaks. Like, we're talking 20-minute bathroom breaks every hour. That is a little bit excessive. But... And then an hour and a half for lunch? I wish I had an hour and a half for lunch every week, right? Does anybody else feel that way? Every day, not every week. But it was interesting nonetheless. Uh, it was also cool to see how the deliberations work out and you get 12 people to agree on something. Uh, that's, that's a miracle right there, week after week, going on in the courthouse. Um, but truly, it was, it, was, it was an honor. It was cool. Uh, and the way I prepped for this sermon was in those long breaks, because I wasn't in my office, I was doing it in the little courtroom jury area. And so I'm surrounded by lawyers, I'm surrounded by witnesses, I'm hearing testimony constantly. And then I pick up our book that we're going to start reading today. And if you read 1 John, you probably noticed there's a lot of legal language in it. A lot of legal language. John starts off like he's an eyewitness. Right? He starts listing his credentials. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him teach. For three years, I listened to this guy. I knew Jesus. And then John develops his story. He gives his account. And so, as I was sitting there in the courthouse surrounded by this, it, it just kind of struck me as just a very interesting thing. Well, before we jump into John, we're going to be looking at his letters for the next month or two. The next couple months. Um, before we understand 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we need some background. We need to understand what John is trying to do as he writes, because only when we understand what he's accomplishing are we able to see, oh yeah, that's, that's what he's doing. I, I get that now, why he's saying what he's saying. And so we need to understand John's purpose is twofold. 
twofold in writing this letter to us. The first may surprise you. His first and primary reason for writing is because some false teachers had crept their way into the church. Some false teachers, some people that taught opposite of what John taught had come into the church and started teaching wrong things. And so you're kind of wondering, well, what were some of these wrong things? Well, apparently, apparently some of the wrong things were that these false teachers came into these churches that John planted and moved on to, and then they came in and they started telling the church, hey, don't hang out with John. Don't associate with John. Ignore him. He's not credible. The guy that planted the church, they start seeding doubt. But more than that, they just start seeding a lot of discord. There's a lot of like, don't hang out with so-and-so, rip apart from this. And it's just this very divisive culture that they come and seed. And you see that a lot in 3 John. But in 2 John, what we also see, which is all throughout all these letters, is somehow these people came in and started teaching that Jesus didn't have a body. That Jesus was nothing more than a spiritual ghost-like figure that walked among the people and talked to them. And so John counters this very clearly in the opening. No, I touched him. He wasn't a spirit. I touched him. I sat there. I watched him feed us on the shore. I talked with him. But most importantly, and the third damaging thing that John writes to address is apparently these people snuck into the church and they started teaching that if you're going to be a Christian, you got to have it all together. If you're going to be a Christian, you can never sin. You probably see where this is a bad idea, right? Imagine you come to church week after week after week and I tell you, or Pastor Chris tells you, if you're a true Christian, you have nothing wrong in your life. If you're a true Christian, if you really know God and follow God, then you never sin. Well, if you're like most people, you're going to start thinking back to this morning or yesterday or this week, and you're going to be like, I'm not a true Christian. (laughs) We all have stuff. But the problem is, and this happened in John's churches, people started to believe this. And when they started to believe this, what do you think they did? People started to leave the church. Well, I'm clearly not one of them. And so they would leave, and they'd withdraw. Here's the thing. John's a pastor. John, as he writes this to us, isn't just Apostle John who doesn't really know these people and is just spewing truth. No, he knows them. This would be the equivalent of Pastor Chris writing a letter to the church. He knows all of us. He knows our names. He knows our families. He knows our background. And so when he sees people leave the church because wrong teaching has come in, John's heart breaks. His heart breaks. And so he writes and says, no, come back. Identify. These are not good people. Run from them. Identify. So he writes, first and foremost, protecting the church. But the second thing he does, after he kind of says, they have no credibility. I have credibility. I heard from Jesus. I heard the truth. John then says, let me tell you what the truth is. And so he begins to unfold the truth. He begins to explain who God is, what it's like to be a Christian, what it means to follow Christ, what it's like to be in relationship with God. John lays a very simple book, frankly. It's his manifesto, his mere Christianity, his explanation of what it means to be a Christian. And this morning, our passage is the foundational principle of what John lays. 
Everything he's going to talk about in his letter has to do with what we talk about today. Our letter, or what we're going to read, is essentially the crux. The crux of Christianity. Christianity and its most simplest, basic form. What is it about? And what we're going to see very clearly is that Christianity, what it means to follow Christ, doesn't mean you have it all together. Not at all. And thank God. But what Christianity is all about is saying, look, I I don't have to have it all together, but Lord, I just want to be real. I'm not going to show pretense. I'm not going to make stuff up. I'm not going to try and make people like me. And some of you are thinking, wait, no, that's the Christianity I know. (laughs) No, that's not what John's about. For John, it's very much about just living honestly, openly, and that kind of stuff. So that's what we're going to see. So I invite you this morning, grab your Bibles, open up to page 855, 855, and we're going to look at 1 John chapter 1 this morning. 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read through the very first part of chapter 2, the first couple verses, because it kind of concludes his thought there. But 1 John chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through chapter 2, 2. As we read, you're going to notice John's going to lay out his credentials first. He's going to tell us why he has authority to speak, okay? And he's going to tell us why he's writing. And then he's going to tell us his message, all right? And on some levels, you'll be able to track his message, but I want to take it a little deeper, okay? Because it's very rich language that he uses. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. Brothers and sisters, we have seen it and testify to it. And we therefore proclaim to you the eternal life. The eternal life which was first with the Father but has now appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. So that you may be in relationship with us with us for our fellowship our relationship is with the father and with his son jesus christ furthermore we write this to make our joy complete now brothers and sisters this is the message we have heard from him and therefore declare to you god is light in him there is no darkness at all if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness we lie and we do not live out the truth But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, but more than that, he will also purify us from all our unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, not only are we a liar, as he said in verse 8, but we make God out to be a liar. And his word of truth is not in us. My dear children, how pastoral is that? This is John writing very sincerely. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, know this. We have an advocate with the Father. We have a lawyer who stands before the throne. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So John starts, as I said, by listing his credentials, right? I saw him, I touched him, I heard him. But he doesn't just say I, right? He uses first person plural. We. 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 Who's the we? The we is John grouping himself with the rest of the apostles, right? An eyewitness testimony is great. You got one person giving a testimony. Okay, that's one guy's word versus another. What John does here is he lumps himself in with the other apostles. He's saying, I'm not just the only guy that did. I was among a group. I was among the apostles. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We were in the upper room when he resurrected. I'm not just making stuff up. I was with him. I heard him. I learned the truth from him. And now, he says, church, I pass that truth on to you. And I pass it on for two reasons. Verse 3, so that you might have fellowship with us. Fellowship's one of those weird Christian F words we use. It really is kind of nebulous, and we just throw it around for funsies. But nobody really knows what it means. The idea here with fellowship is relationship. And it's not just knowledge about somebody, like, I know certain facts about that person. No. It's about, I'm involved in their life, they're involved in my life. But more than that, it's not even just that we know things about each other, but fellowship indicates that we're about a common purpose. My marriage, I don't just know details about my wife, and she doesn't know just details about me. And it's more than that. It's not just that we now have an idea and we we share things with each other openly. Melissa and I are on the same page. We're about the same things. We're moving through life as a team. That's fellowship. And so as a church, it's about coming together and being on the same page, being about the same things. And the second reason John says that he writes is to make our joy complete. It's kind of weird. You would think he might say, I want you to understand the truth of Christianity so that your joy might be complete. But he doesn't. He says, I write so that our joy, ours, the apostles. Again, this is a pastoral statement. John is writing and saying, as a church, people I know, people I love, and I see you walking out that door, it kills him inside. It kills him inside. And he says, no, the thing that would make me most happy is if you truly understood the grace of the gospel. If you understood what Jesus did for you and that you would walk in that truth. That's what would make John most happy. Not that you tithe more, Not that you show up to church more often. No, but that you would live in the truth. So after laying out his credentials, he then says, again, I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. I now relay the truth to you. And he uses a metaphor. He uses the metaphor of light and darkness, right? In verse 5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all our sin. Light and darkness is an odd metaphor. It's actually one that John uses a lot. He uses it a lot and he develops it most clearly in his gospel in the Gospel of John, and specifically in chapter 3. 
in chapter 3. So I'm going to ask him to throw it up on the board. You're probably going to be familiar with this first verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Where is this one from? John 3.16, right? Well, a couple verses later, John says this in explaining Jesus coming. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but the world loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be, so that it may be seen plainly, that is a mouthful, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. It's kind of, a, again, it, the whole passage is very abstract and very confusing. Let's see if we can take it section by section and try and understand what he's communicating. Light has come into the world. Well, who's the light? John later tells us Jesus is the light of the world, right? Christ stepped into the world, and in stepping into the world, Jesus revealed two things about himself. Two things Jesus brought with him about light and truth. The first is this. In the person of Jesus, we have the clearest revelation of the character of God. In the person of Jesus, the way we see him interact with people, the way he loves people, the way he cares for people, the way he takes care of the, the dejected in society, the marginalized women, men, sinners, righteous, however you want to say it. That and the way he deals with them is the clearest expression of who God is and what God is like. You want to know who God is? You want to know what God is like? Read about Jesus and how he interacted with people. That is who God is. And Jesus brought that light into the world, this crystal clear clarity about who God is. But the second thing is this. Jesus didn't just simply come and say, well, this is God and it's great. No, he also came to teach. And so the second thing that Jesus reveals is not only the character of God, but who we were created to be. Jesus reveals who we were in his teaching. He teaches us this is who you were created to be. This is the life God intended you to live. A life full of abundance. A life of freedom. A life of hope. A life of joy. Not a life of burden. But the people apparently rejected this truth. They didn't want anything to do with God. And they didn't want anything to do with his message. And why? Because their deeds were evil, it says. Because their deeds were evil. In other words, they saw the truth, but the truth made them uncomfortable. They didn't want to allow the truth, the message of God, to actually interfere with the rest of their life. Flip this thing out. <laughs> they didn't want God to mess with their life. They didn't like the idea of surrendering their life to somebody else. They didn't like the idea of openness. They didn't like the idea of transparency. So they hid their stuff. They buried it. They covered it up. They were afraid of seeing what people would come, or they were afraid of how people would understand them. But whoever lives by the truth, John says, Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. In other words, it's this. Those who follow Christ 
open their lives to Christ. All of it. They don't section it off. They don't bifurcate it. They don't go, here's the stuff I want people to see, and here's the stuff I don't want people to see. Have you known people like this? Have you known people that do this? And it's obnoxious, can we just admit? The people in the world that you're talking to them and you're like, yeah, you are so pretentious. You are just hiding stuff. You're just making stuff up. You're putting on a fake smile. You got your church face. Everything's good. You got your church face on. And John's saying in verses 6 and 7, we are to walk in the dark, or walk in the light and not in the darkness. He's not saying you have to have it all together. He's simply saying this, stop pretending you have it all together. Stop pretending you never make mistakes. Stop pretending you're somehow the world's greatest parent, the world's greatest spouse, the world's greatest co-worker, the world's greatest Christian. Stop. Live honestly. Live openly. Live humbly. This isn't like a call to action. Do you see this? This is him saying, this is a call to inaction. Stop trying so hard to be fake. Just be. Be real. Be real and invite God into all the aspects of your life. And here's the other thing about this. It's exhausting. Is it not? It's exhausting keeping secrets. It's exhausting hiding things from people. And what's the point? All it does when we hide things, when we know we've messed up, when we know we've done things we shouldn't do, all it does is fester, right? You did something. And maybe it's easier for you if you think back to when you were a child. But when you did something wrong and you knew you did something wrong, like you broke your arm and you didn't want to tell your parents, we had a little girl in here this morning who did that. It's just this standard for kids. But we do this as adults. All it does is bring guilt. All it does is bring shame. All it does is weigh you down and discourage you. Is that the life that Jesus intended for you? No. Jesus came that you would have freedom. Not shame. Not be ashamed of the way you live. Jesus came for freedom. <sighs> It's exhausting. And then here's the other beauty of this whole thing. Look at verse 8. What are we so afraid of? What are we so afraid of that we have to keep these secrets, that we have to be pretentious, that we have to spend all this time coming up with excuses? What are we afraid of that somebody's going to think, oh, they're terrible? Here's the beauty, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we all deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And more than that, look at verse 10. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his truth is not in us. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone. You're no different than anybody else. You got different stuff than other people, sure. But you're no different than them. Why are you spending so much time hiding your stuff? Are you afraid that they're perfect and somehow you're gonna, they're going to mar their understanding of you? No! No! So John calls us to freedom. John calls us and says, you want to fix 
that guilt? You want to fix that burden in your life? You want to fix why you're having to go around and be all pretentious the whole time? Confess. Just get it out there. Own your stuff. Own your stuff. If you're not sure what confession is, again, I want to go back to when you were a child. Or if you're a parent, you probably do this still with your kid. When your kid messes up, right? Let's say when you were a kid, you broke a vase, you broke the TV, you broke the car. Uh, mine was a tape measure. You know, the... Um, Got to work on that sound, too. Um, I remember breaking a tape measure distinctly, and my dad found it. And he walked over to me and was like, did you break my tape measure? Like, he knew, right? My dad knew as soon as he walked in and saw his tape measure on the floor. He knew I did it. Right, you've been there. You broke the vase. Your mom, your dad, they know instantly. That was them. I know who it is. And yet they still walk up to you and say, did you do it? And as a child, you go, uh-uh. <laughs> nope. I don't know how it broke. A bird flew, whatever. Why does a parent push a kid to confess? A parent doesn't push a kid to confess because they love watching their child squirm in front of them. Oh, I love watching my child be in agony. No, nobody does that. Why? Because a parent knows the same thing God knows. That only when we confess are we able to receive forgiveness. Only when we own what we have done, only when I go to my wife and say, I messed up in this way, can she say, I know, and I forgive you. It's the only time I can hear it, is when she speaks, when I own my stuff. She could say, I forgive you, or I could say, I'm sorry, in the blanket statement. Anybody else do this? I'm sorry. Means nothing. You don't actually name anything specific. But when you own your stuff, you go, I messed up like this, and they may not instantly receive it, but they finally come around and say, I forgive you, that means something. And so John tells us, God already knows that you've sinned. You're not hiding anything from him. So confess it. Own it. And here's the beauty. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to not only forgive our sins, but to purify us from all unrighteousness. So again, going to the child analogy to understand forgiveness and purity is this. When a parent says, I forgive you, it's them saying, I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. Right? It's them saying, it's done. We're, we're good. We're cool. That's it. I'm not bringing it up. We're good. I forgive you. But purity, purity, or to purify unrighteousness is God not only saying, yes, I'm not going to hold that broken vase against you. It's God saying, I'm going to stoop down and I'm going to clean that vase up for you. I'm going to help you get your life back together. And, and this, this is the truth of the gospel. Because I don't know about you, but I've tried to make my life look pretty good. I've tried to do good, and there's a lot of things that I do well. Like, I'm not going to lie, I do some things well. But there's a lot of sin that no matter how hard I try and go cold turkey or force myself out of it, anger, lust, pride, whatever it is, they all creep up. I can't fight those on my own. But it's only when I confess them to the Lord and I go, Lord, I need you in this area of my life. Is he able to go, I know. I forgive you. Let me help you. Let me step in and clean that up for you. And it's only Christ that can do that. It's only the Holy Spirit that can do that work. 
Brothers and sisters, can we be honest with each other today? Can we just, can we be honest? Can we stop pretending we've got it all together? Can we stop pretending we have the world's most perfect marriage, the world's most perfect children, the world's most perfect job, the world's most perfect life? Can we pretend Facebook doesn't exist for a little while? Right, have you noticed on Facebook, the only thing people post is how great their life is, and then you talk to them and you're like, man, you got a lot of stuff going on. Why do I only see the negative or the positive on Facebook? That's how we've become. We only show people what we want. Can we be honest with each other? And I'm, by honest, I'm not saying we walk around and we're dreary. <laughs> I'm not saying we're the mopey church. Oh, you don't want to go to Grace. They're all depressed. <laughs> they all talk about how bad life is. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, can you imagine being in a church where people were just honest with each other? Where people say, felt safe? where we walked in and we decided, you know what, we are safe with each other. I'm not taking your stuff to others. I'm not going to use it against you. I'm not going to one-up you. I'm just going to speak words of truth and grace into your life. Can you imagine what the church would look like if we did that? I would want to be a part of that community. We don't need to do evangelism at that point. Everybody's going to flock to that. You mean they care for me? Church, can we care for one another? All of us need a place where we can just be honest and open before the Lord and before each other. Where we can speak words of hope and words of insurance to each other. But here's the thing, we need to also confess this. Nobody likes to admit they did wrong. Nobody. Nobody wants to own that their marriage is in some serious trouble. No one wants to admit they don't know how to love their spouse anymore. Or that they don't love their spouse anymore. No one wants to admit that. No one wants to admit they don't know how to parent their kids. Or worse, no one wants to admit they screwed up parenting their kid. They messed up. Nobody wants to admit they messed up at work. Nobody wants to admit they harbor bitterness. They harbor anger. No one wants to admit they spend late nights on the computer looking at stuff they shouldn't be looking at. No one wants to admit they've got a drug addiction. They struggle with alcohol. They spend way too much at the liquor store. No one wants to admit they've got a gambling addiction. Nobody wants to admit they're in the wrong. No one. No one. But as we've already said, it's so exhausting coming up with excuses. It's exhausting coming up with excuses. It's exhausting coming to church and somebody goes, hey, what'd you do last night? And having to come up with, well, let me think something that's appropriate. Uh, it's exhausting when somebody asks about your marriage and you tell them, oh yeah, things are great. And all along you're thinking, if you only knew. We're really struggling. How's your kids? We're at each other's throats. <laughs> if you only knew. Guys, it's exhausting. It just creates bitterness, it creates shame, it creates resentment. That is not the life Christ intended for us. That's not the picture of the church we get. That's not who we were supposed to be. And here's the other beauty of the whole thing. What's the point? 
Everyone else in this room is just as bad off as you are in some areas. Maybe different areas, but every single person in this room needs help in something. Every single one of us needs to experience the grace, hope, and forgiveness of Christ. Every single one needs a word of hope and encouragement. You may not at this moment need that. That's a very good authoritative pop at that moment. That was good. That was really good, Captain. I'm just going to affirm you on that one. But all of us need grace in our lives. And so this morning, church, as we wrap up, I encourage you, take time this morning to confess before the Lord. As we come to the table, if you want to come to the rail and spend time with the Lord, beautiful. Spend that time. Don't feel rushed. There's no rush. If we finish worship and Chris is up here doing the benediction, you can stay. No shame. All right? More than that, if you want to talk with someone today, if you want to be bold, I invite you. There is something incredibly freeing about confession to another person. This happens all the time with students. When we're out on retreats or whatever it is, they just get something off. Hey, I'm really struggling with my parents. Hey, I've been fighting with my best friend. Hey, whatever. And then afterwards, they're like, oh my gosh, that feels so much lighter. It's not that the problem was taken away, but there's something about just saying it to another person. Pull somebody aside. Ask somebody to pray for you. Say, hey, can you just pray for me? Can you speak a word of encouragement in my life? And if you're a person that's like, I hope they don't choose me. I don't know what to say. I don't know what's going to go on if they actually talk to me. Here's the thing. You don't have to have the answers. And, and you know why? Nobody wants to be told how to live by you. Okay? Nobody wants you to tell them how to live. They're not looking for that. What are they looking for? Encouragement. They want to know they're not alone. They want to know some truth. And so what's the truth? You just speak scripture. If they confess and say, hey, I've really been messing up with this, that, and the other thing, it's you coming to them and going, Jesus is faithful. He is just. He has forgiven your sins, and he will step in and help clean up that mess. Or you can speak this next verse, these next couple verses, which I think are just as powerful. I've read them a few times. This is one to memorize, verse, or chapter 2. My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. What he's getting at here is this. Brothers and sisters, the grace and freedom and forgiveness of Christ is not something we are to take advantage of. It's not a license to go ahead and sin and do whatever you want. That's not it at all. We are certainly to strive for holiness. We are to not jump into sin just because we'll be forgiven later. No. But what John automatically recognizes is that all of us at some point are going to sin. And more than that, all of us need to know that when we sin, we're not alone. That's where the advocate language comes in. This is courtroom language again. Advocate is a lawyer. A lawyer who stands before the jury, stands before the throne of God and says over and over and over again, I died for that. My blood covers that. They didn't even know about that one, but I got it. 
It's Jesus. The picture is him fighting on your behalf. That's a word of encouragement you can speak to someone. That's a word of encouragement I think all of us need to hear over and over and over again. And so church, this morning, I implore us. I invite us. I don't want to say I'm challenging. I want to invite. I hope I've painted a picture of something that would be very attractional to you because this is the picture that John preaches. Not an awkward situation, but a church of people that are walking out of darkness into light. A church where people are saying, I don't have it all together who aren't pretending they do, but a church that are saying, you know what, I need Jesus, and I'm looking to follow him, and I need some help in that process. No judgment, no shame, just honesty, being real. I, I assume, like me, you have people in your life who are like that. I love people like that. It is so refreshing. Imagine if we had a church like that. Brothers and sisters, walk out of the darkness, into the light. Receive the grace of Christ. Receive his forgiveness. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled by your word. And at the same time, we are in awe of your son Christ. Lord, the grace and love that you have shown us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in darkness, you broke in with your marvelous light. Lord, we confess that like everyone, we want to hide our evil deeds. We want to hide those things we are not proud of. Lord, we are ashamed. Spirit, I ask for your strength. I ask for your strength to come in and give us the boldness to open our lives to you, open our lives to one another. Lord, for you to speak your grace in those areas of our life, for you and your redeeming work to come in and purify our unrighteousness, our brokenness. Lord, not just for our sake, but Lord, as we receive forgiveness, May that forgiveness, may that love, that hope, that joy that we feel, may that become infectious to those we come into contact with. In a broken world that we live in, a broken world that is surrounded by white picket fences and painted uh, houses that look great on the outside, but if people only knew what was going on on the dark side, on the inside of the house, Lord, that the light would be infectious in those areas, that your spirit would come and do incredible work. Not by our power, not because we're worth it, not because we're great in any way and deserve it, and thank God for that, but Lord, because you are good, because you are holy, and because you promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. Lord, receive these offerings as a small token of our gratitude. And as we lift our voices, Lord, may it put a smile on your face. In Jesus' name, amen.